Hi guys, I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 56 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molle, your host. This week, I speak to Dan Kiernan, a former pro who has set up a great academy in Soto Grande in Spain. This episode will be split into two shows. This week, we'll talk about how Dan got into tennis, winning a round at Wimbledon, and his road to opening the Soto Tennis Academy, as well as an in-depth look into life at the academy. Next week, we'll be back with Dan telling us how he used the COVID pandemic as an opportunity to grow the academy worldwide. And we also touch deeply on mental health issues in tennis. Shout out to our podcast sponsors, Head. And if you're on Twitter, please give us a follow over at Funk Tennis. That's F-U-N-C Tennis. We have restarted our Twitter account and want to be more active over there. And it's a great way to connect with our listeners. Okay, let's get started. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Fabio, thanks thanks for having me. It's been a while. Uh, I've been wanting to get you on for various reasons. One being, I know from the Soda Tennis Academy long before I started functional tennis through my pal and your another LSU alumni like yourself, James Kluski, who did a bit of training with you over there. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that's going back some, that is Fabio, but it's, uh, yeah, James would come out, you know, every now and then, and actually back in the day with like Liam Brody, and I'm sure James will thank me for this story. But uh, he actually beat. We did a physical testing, and he beat Liam Brody in the sprints. Um, and he's never let Liam um, live it down, you know. So yeah, the the, the good old days, and uh, we've had a lot of Irish players over the years as well. The connection's been strong. I don't believe. I don't believe Kluski won it. A race. We have a video somewhere in the archives. I think it was potentially down to Liam Brody's lack of effort a little bit, but but hey, at, at the end of the day, he still beat his man on the day, um, and and Liam got a hard time for it ever since. That's for sure. Well, if you find that, you got to send that to me. Two. Also, we have a top academies list on functional tennis. And we just don't want to ride about the top academies. And now Soto's entered that, will enter that list. When this podcast is live, you'll be on that list. So it's great to speak to the founder and to the main man who, who set up the academy. And that's why I want to do this podcast as well. We've done it with a few other academies and it's great. And it just gives listeners a better insight into the academy rather than some information you send me, how far is from the airport, all that sort of stuff. So it's good to speak and get your values and see a bit more in depth how the academy runs. I, I really appreciate that, Fabio, you know, and any... You know, any support that, you know, academies like ourselves can get from from platforms like yourself is 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 massively appreciated, you know, and um, I'm, I'll answer all questions on, on any topic as honestly as possible. Um, so anything you want to know about the academy, we can we can we can get into the detail. That's for sure. Great. That's fantastic. And three is I know during COVID, it's been tough for all academies, coaches, players, for everybody in every line of business. But I think you've handled it really well. You've been really progressive and I think you've been really busy. I heard you say you haven't been off, haven't had a day off in 14 weeks. Like that's since when this COVID really started. And 
I just want to hear more about that and what worked for you and what didn't work about you and how I feel you're going to come out of this stronger than you did going into it, which is not the case for everybody. So it'd be great to get some insight into that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been a been a testing and challenging time, I think, for for everybody globally. And you know, I've said it on a couple of our podcasts. It's almost that I think that's helped us all a little bit that everybody's in the same boat. You know, I think there's been a there's been a connection that people have made through this pandemic. And I, I'm always a big believer that adversity says a lot, you know, says a lot about tennis players, says a lot about about people. And I have to admit, I've I've had a brilliant team. I've had a brilliant team over the last few weeks. You know, it's uh, I sometimes get some of the praise for the initiatives, but there's a lot of great people behind me that are that are doing the work and working extremely hard as well. So I feel very fortunate and feel feel very connected to my team. It's brought us close together, and you know, like like you said, I hope a lot of really good things will come out of this as well. I agree there, and I also think that by you doing it, other academy seed as well, and that pushes them to do more. They're like, God, Dan's killing it over there at Soto. Look at what he's doing for the community, and so that gets that gives them a kick up the arse and go, God, we better do something here. And so yeah, okay, let's start with how did you get into coaching maybe talk us a bit about your your tennis days I know you were a pro and yeah how you ended up down in Spain yeah so I mean there's a longer version and I'll try not to bore the listeners too much but like a lot of players you know back in in the day so I was a 1980 baby um so back in the day from from the northeast of England football was the sport really um you know played football to a decent level was fortunate to have a couple of older brothers who got me into sport and kind of bullied me with being better at me at sport at that young age. So I kind of, they started at eight, I started at five. You know, I was kind of the fortunate third child with two older brothers. Um, and, and yeah, didn't really know if I was any good, but I guess just back in the day, just loved playing sport, loved playing football, loved playing tennis. Um, it all became a little bit more serious age 14 because I was offered a place at the National Academy down at Bisham Abbey, um, which meant leaving home, you know, and that was uh, at the time I was playing football for Middlesbrough School of Excellence. Um, I guess it would be Middlesbrough Academy nowadays. So there was a bit of a tennis or football decision to make at that point, but also moving away from a very close family, um, which was which was very scary. Um, so I took that leap, um, had four years down at Bisham Abbey before being um, quite fortunate again in, in, at that time to almost fall into the opportunity to go to U.S. college. Um, and, and when I was in U.S. college, I actually started doing a little bit of coaching. So just to make a little bit of extra cash, you know, to, to pay some bills. And, and I have to admit, it always felt quite right and quite easy for me to coach. Um, I've got a family full of school teachers from parents, brother, sister, aunties, uncles, cousins. So I think it's kind of that teaching way, natural teaching way is the way I was brought up. So it, it tended to just feel quite natural for me to be part of teaching and connecting with people. So then when I played on, I played on the pro tour, I always said, actually, I, I had a, got a marketing degree in, in America and I always said that I would go into marketing um, and 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 I wouldn't wouldn't stay completely in tennis in in terms of having a tracksuit on every day. Um, however, as I was playing my pro career, I 
I started to do a little bit of coaching at Edgbaston Priory, as as you will get with a lot of tennis players. You know, you're trying to. I was British number one doubles player, about 150 in the world, but I wasn't making enough through my playing to kind of keep me going. So I started doing then a few hours at Edgbaston Priory, and and as it kind of naturally, that kind of naturally took over really my playing. I just, you know, I remember 2005. I was actually coaching almost full time, but still playing tournaments. And we actually won our first round at Wimbledon and lost a tight match to the Bryan brothers. And a lot of my students were there uh, watching that, which was, it, it gave me, and I say this to, to coaches or players all the time, when, when you play to a good level, you get a bit of a legs up into the coaching world, but that leg up doesn't last for long. You know, you need to become a coach by right. So yeah, so that was it. I I, I gradually stopped playing. Um, after, after that summer, I'd kind of recouped a few of my losses, you know, by by getting a bit of a payout at Wimbledon and we, we made a couple of challenger finals. And then, and then kind of before I knew it, I was a full-time coach and it just felt, it felt very natural. It felt very normal. And, and I felt very passionate about doing it really. Um, so, so yes, I did that, did that for five, six years at Edgebaston Priory, absolutely loved it. Um, and my decision to move to Spain is certainly not a reflection of, of how I was enjoying my time in the UK or at Edgebaston Priory. You know, I loved my job there, loved the players I was working with. You know, was very fortunate. I started with like a Lloyd Glass Paul age 10 or 11 and worked with him all the way through. Um, you know, Bjorn Thompson, actually, who you might know, who plays for Ireland. Bjorn, Bjorn I started working with age five. So he, he walked through the doors. He was one of the first players I coached at Edgebaston. And, and then I just, I'd always had this, this dream of actually doing it somewhere where I felt you could play out, outdoors all year round. And we, we considered Australia, myself and my wife, but Australia seemed a long way away. And we started, we then started looking in, in the Costa del Sol, which was only two hours, two and a half hours away. And my one of my best friends, he's a kind of, he's a sports scientist. He's worked at a very high level on, on that side. We got our heads together. We were over there on a holiday back, what, 11 years ago. And that's when the idea for Soto Tennis was planted. Wow, that's 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 a nice journey. You know, you've seen it all. Before we talk about Soto, Dan, tell me, what was it like to win a round at Wimbledon? Obviously, not that many people actually win a round there. And that's a dream of so many pro players who some may not even get a chance. But what was the feeling for you like? As you've asked that question, I've got goosebumps. So I think that probably explains the feeling a little bit. Um, but I, I would say there's positives and there's negatives to this to this part because I certainly and if I start with with the negative is and and then end hopefully on on the positive I, I think I was certainly guilty of setting a ceiling so as a as a tennis player you know and I think I think certainly a lot of British players and I'm sure Irish players have been guilty of this over the years where my goal and ambition became to play Wimbledon. And, you know, so so I when I got to about 150 in the world, I kind of knew I was getting my wild card. You know, so the first year we played Wimbledon, got the wild card, and that felt great. But my mind probably wasn't. We had set points in the first set in our first time we played. And my mind probably wasn't quite ready to win a match there because I was almost, 
not not clearly satisfied, but that would be a reflection that I had that I was satisfied that I'd kind of got through the doors of Wimbledon. So the following year, I'd, I'd moved that ambition, and again, not high enough in my opinion. Uh, but maybe we at that point we didn't have anyone leading the way. Really, I was British number one at one fifty, one sixty. You know, whereas now we've got we've got eight, nine, ten guys in the top hundred, and and I I was then okay. I want to win a match at Wimbledon. So we actually played against High Tack Lee, the Korean guy, and Kevin Kim. And we were two sets to love down in the first round. Um, yeah, which, and a, and a bit of a funny story, actually. I mean, I've always been a big lad. I was in good shape when I was a player, but I was a big lad. And Head, Head had sent me the new kit. And te- tennis players, or it's kind of always been a slim fit fitting and my thighs and backside are great <laughs> with slim fit and we were actually in, in, a, in a practice match a couple of days before the first round I was practicing the eye formation and I heard a bit of a split in the back of my shorts <laughs> um, which, which was a bit embarrassing because we were playing against uh, Rick Leach who, had, who was a former Wimbledon champion and and then during the match I genuinely for two sets felt really uncomfortable with the clothes I was wearing it was, it just, you know, I felt, I felt tight. I felt restricted. Um, and, and at two sets to love, I said to my partner, James Auckland, I'm going to get changed. And I bought a pair of uh, Nike shorts from Queens Club a couple of weeks earlier. And then I pulled out my old Reebok LSU top, which I'd unpicked all of the, all of the seams. So, so it didn't say LSU, it was yeah. legal at Wimbledon. And I went into the bathroom and I put that on. And I genuinely felt like a new man. And I came out and we played an amazing three sets in a row to win that match. And it was such a, my memory of that was how confident I felt in the fifth set. I felt like I owned Wimbledon. You know, I just had like, whereas the year before I was very, I was very timid. You know, I wasn't kind of probably breathing correctly. I felt very nervous, very heavy. Whereas on that day, certainly for those last three sets, I felt like anything I touched turned to gold. You know, I felt really comfortable taking the lead. I know James James Auckland got very nervous when we were serving. I was serving for the match of 5-4 in the fifth set. But we had a big crowd, lots of my students, family. And yeah, you can't, you, you, you can't write those sort of stories and those feelings that you have. I mean, it was, it was incredible, really. And that was, that was on the Friday. And then we finished. And, and what I also couldn't believe was how, how tired I was after a five-set match. It, not so much physically, but more the mental exhaustion of it. Um, sorry, that was the Thursday, because we played late at rain that year. We then, would, we then got drawn against the Bryan brothers, which we thought, this is going to be a big court. You know, we're going to be caught on, maybe. Um, and actually, and I'm still not sure why, but they actually... The Bryans were number one seeds, but they actually put the number two seeds on court one the next day against just some kind of random, random players. So I always wondered why they didn't put the British guys against the Bryans on court one, but that that's fine. And and the next day we got fortunate because we were just really flat from the day before, and we went a set down to the Bryans six three, pretty routine. And then the rain came. And that rain was, and you hear it at a, at a high level. Obviously, there's some very famous matches, even Nisovic, Henman being a big one, that, that were affected by the rain at Wimbledon. But it did, it just, it gave us that extra few hours. And we came out middle Saturday, a big crowd, 
around one of the kind of back courts at Wimbledon, court 11 or court 12, but a big crowd around there. And, and for a, the next set and a half, without any word of a lie, I felt like we were completely dominating the Bryan brothers. You know, wow. we, we, won, we won the second set. And then we were four, three up, I believe, in the third set. And we had two break points on Bob to go five, three up. And and I felt like we were the best pair. I really did. Um, and then, I'll, again, I'll live with this for a long time. But I hit a, I, I, I read Bob serve, bit of a chopper grip forehand, got it to his feet. And, and James made a brave move, but probably the wrong move. He went across rather than forward. Bob nudged line and then served three aces. And, and then we got hit by a bulldozer. And they just like, and I think we lost maybe four and three, four and four from there. Um, but that was that was an amazing experience. But I wish that I'd built on that. You know, not certainly not a big regret because I've gone on to, you know, do things that I love and I've taken responsibility for that part of time. But at the time, that was almost me done. I think because I'd set my goals and I'd set ceilings to what I wanted to achieve. So I think there's a bit of a message maybe in there for, for, for any players listening, you know, don't set ceilings, you know, set goals, but, you know, keep moving those goals forward because I think we're all capable of a little bit more than we realise sometimes. If you had have won that match and kept going doubles, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. There may not be Soto Tennis Academy, maybe somewhere else. You may be still on the tour, like in doubles terms, you'd still be... I think in the highlight part of your career, because there's so many uh, players from your age still playing at the moment. So uh, one result really can, I know it may not have changed anything, but one result can change a lot of things for a lot of players. Yeah, and I'd like to say on that, Fabio, as well, because it's, I know in my heart of hearts, I had the level to be a top 50, top 30, top 40 doubles player. I really, I really know that. However, you have to have more than just the level. You have to have the ability, the resilience, you know, to, you have to travel, you have to go through, you have to push through difficult times. And I absolutely tip my hat to any of these guys that have gone and done it. You know, it's, it would be easy sometimes for me to sit back and like World Tour Finals a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, I've beaten them, I've beaten them, I've beaten them, I've beaten them. However... I'm not there, you know, so that I, I, I'm very comfortable with that, you know, and it's, you know, because th those guys have gone out and, and as any tennis players know and tennis coaches or people in the tennis world really close to it, probably the biggest attribute is your ability to, to manage disappointment, to be resilient, to continue the grind of being on the tour for through those futures and challenges and, you know, away from your family, your friends. And, and that wasn't quite for me. You know, and I'm very comfortable with that, you know, and, and fair play to all of those guys that have, have done it. And, you know, the likes of Sam Qureshi, who's now 40 years old, he's my age, still still doing it. And there's, there's, there's many more to mention. Um, I, I certainly tip my hat to all of them because they had an attribute that I didn't and, and fair play to them. Yeah, you're right. It's more than just having the skill or the level. I know you see, I see some German uh, league matches or French league matches and the level of some of the players is ridiculous and they've never played a pro match in their life they just never had interest in going pro but they'd seriously trouble top 100 pros and they're scared of them so it's just people make decisions some want it more than others and then some just don't want it at all but they're really good before we get on to the soda I have one last question do you still wear the LSU gear? <laughs> you know what? I, I've I have I have a couple of tops. I was certainly I mean you can spot a college tennis player a mile off, can't you? At any at any tennis tournament. And I certainly went through a lot of years 
of wearing LSU gear. I also, my coach, who was also James Kluski's coach, who we talked about earlier, he actually left his post at LSU two or three years ago. So I definitely had less of a connection. Every now and then he might send me a T-shirt yeah. or I might, you know, there might be the odd one coming through. Yeah, so I, I actually, I went back there for the first time about almost two years ago now. I hadn't been back to LSU for about 15 years um, and again, anyone from different colleges will know this. It's a, you, it, it becomes a home. It becomes a big, big part of you. And, and LSU certainly has that impact on me. You know, it's a, it's a second home. It's, it's something that I'm very strongly connected to. And that was amazing. And went back to the, the football stadium, saw the new tennis facility. And I, and I must admit, I did pick myself up a couple of new LSU branded <laughs> tops. Um, you know the merchandise must much, much, must make an absolute fortune over there. Um, so I've got an LSU golf top now. So if I ever get on the golf course, I'm still representing the Tigers. Uh, you're you're sorted because only only Sunday I played paddle with James Klusky, and he was head to toe LSU. Loves the stuff. This podcast is brought to you by Asics Tennis. Asics is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at Asics.com. Asics Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. Tell us about uh, Soto, where it is, how many courts you have, coaches, players, courses you run, education for the kids. Tell us more about Soto. Yeah, so so Soto Grande is it's a hidden gem. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous beautiful here um it's like it's a little i suppose a little urban i say a little urbanization it's actually bigger than people realize uh, but again it is a gated community so that was one of my big attractions you know it's very secure and very well manicured you know the tennis club's 100 yards from the beach you know so and it's almost like its own little campus which is which is beautiful we we run in a very quite a simple manner really we have we have two lots of we call it levels of service um so we have a full-time level of service which basically it's for me I'm a big one on accountability I believe that I believe that every player needs to have someone who's managing that program and someone who's the accountable for the management of the team around the player but also accountable for the development of that player and as a, as a player and as a person so if you're a full-time player at Soto Tennis that's what we do you know we manage you 52 weeks a year we're, we're open, physically open, 48, 49 weeks a year, but it would be very rare that on Christmas Day I'm not speaking to a player. You know, that's, you know, that's the job. You know, that's, the, that's what we do. People come in and, and we are then a, a, big, a big part of their life in every, in every possible way. So we have about 30 to 35 full-time players ranging from I guess really my son who's age nine um and playing to a decent competition level you know through to we currently have a point our highest ranked male player um and Ali Collins on the female side uh, but we have had you know we've had junior grand slam champions we've had numerous top 10 top 20 juniors in the world we've had a top 100 WTA player um, not just to come and practice, but I'm talking about people that we've managed. 
because that's also different. As a tennis academy, you know, we have Dad, Dan Evans comes in. We have different people like this, but they're not Soto tennis players. Um, they come and, you know, use our facility and, you know, the environment. And then the second one is an access player. Um, and the way that I would describe that, if you're a full-time player, you have a lead coach who manages what I call the internal team, which is the, the other tennis coaches at the academy, the, the physio, the sports psychologist, the strength and conditioning coach, um, managers then the external team which might be a sponsor might be an agent might be um, a federation it might be you know fed cup captain davis cup captain or it might be another coach who a player might train in dubai live in dubai and go back for six weeks every year it will be managing the relationship with that coach when the player goes back and then the family and that's how I would define full-time player management and service, whereas the access player service means that we're, the, we're part of the external team. So I'll give the example of Liam Brody on that. He used to spend maybe six to ten weeks a year with us, but Mark Hilton was very much the lead coach who was fully accountable for Liam's development. But Mark would manage me in the academy and say, right, I want him to come in and I want him to do a physical block. I want him to come in and I want him to train on clay for a couple of weeks. I want him to come in and I want Dan, I want you to go and travel with Liam for two or three weeks. You know, so that would be used in, in different ways. And that will be varying again. Like I say, Dan Evans comes and prepares on clay down to we have some eight, nine-year-olds that come in. As long as the, the level is relevant and they're coming in with the right attitude, then we provide that opportunity for people year round. And tell me, do you do any short-term camps? A lot of times at Functional Tennis, we get requests from more recreational older adults, let's say, or sometimes from players from the States, younger players from the States, and they want somewhere to train for two to three to four weeks during the summer. Is that are they programs you provide or that's not you? Yeah, we do. I mean, it, currently on our facility where, I mean, it's a beautiful facility, but we've got six courts, three hard, three clay. So in terms of if, if the player is of relevant level, age and stage of development to players that we have at the academy – then absolutely. So we kind of look at that in a bespoke manner. You know, in the in the summer months, we open our doors to 16 players a week as an access, whereas throughout the year, we only have four places available each week because we, we want to make sure that as a full-time player at Soto Tennis, you know, you are absolutely getting looked after to the very best of our ability in all ways. And the same with access players that come in. We kind of want to know the reason why, you know. So in terms of like recreational come in and play an hour in the morning we don't run camps like that but what we do have is we have the offering of you know we'll have maybe a player come in that wants to to join um or, or get stuck in for two three hours a day yeah uh, with certain level players and then maybe they've got a younger brother who wants one individual lesson a day while he's there you know or maybe the parent wants to do that and, and the same with adults we've had probably on average we have three to four adult groups come out a year who, you know, they'll come out and we'll then provide a very bespoke package for what they want, you know. So um, what we don't tend to do is if someone wants to come and just rent our courts, because actually it doesn't make business sense because we don't have we, courts are a premium at, at the academy. You know, if we were, if we had 25 courts, and someone wanted to come and rent some courts to run to come and play their own tennis, then then of course that makes business model sense. Um, but when if you've got someone coming in 
not paying a whole lot of money to take your courts away. It causes a bit of a, a loggerhead with what we're trying to do at the academy. But we do have some some bespoke adult groups that come in and say, right, this is what we're after. A couple of hours coaching in the morning and maybe set up a local match for a couple of afternoons a week, you know, and some help with the best restaurants to go to. And, you know, we, so we do have that element, but it's not our core business. Okay. And for the younger players that come there, do you have uh, residents on site or do, do they live nearby? Yeah, so we're partners with the Sota Grande International School, which is a which is a fantastic school, um, and we actually run a game program with the school, which which allows players to to do almost part time school, but still getting the relevant um, the relevant courses that they need. This will so so let's say the fourteen to sixteen year olds they leave school at one o'clock each day, and then the sixteen to eighteen year olds start school at three o'clock. And that runs with the Golf Academy. Now, where that's relevant to your question, Fabio, I've gone round the houses a little bit. <laughs> is, is is they they all stay they all stay in the boarding house at the international school. So so the boarding house at the international school is brilliant. It's a, it's amazing, and we then have our access players who come in without their parents. We then have a full pastoral care offering for them. You know, so they have you know with them three meals a day. The food's fantastic. We work with nutritionists on the food. Food. Um, you know, there's then there's nurses on site. You know, they've got all of the the pastoral care in place. There's classrooms, so players coming over that need to study for a couple of hours on an evening. You know, they've got then the the lounges to watch the TV, and you know, it's a very modern modern uh, boarding house uh, which which works extremely well. And the same with groups coming over. There's always that option that we have groups that come over that they stay in the boarding house um, or the other option is if they travel with adults, then we, we get apartments that are all within walking distance of the academy. Um, so yeah, so there, there's, there's different boarding and accommodation options that are in place. If they're a little bit older, then what we have is we have then a self-catered um, option where all of the players stay in a couple of houses which are within 100 yards from the from the academy. But they obviously have to be of the age that they're, they're self-sufficient to do that. Well, it looks like they're well, look, you look after them pretty well. And how many coaches do you have? Yeah, so we've got seven, seven full-time tennis coaches and soon to be three full-time strength and conditioning coaches. Um, which, so yeah, we were, it, it work it works well. We've got a, we've got a really strong coaching team. And as I, as I touched on at the start, you know, they really are uh, people that come and work at Soto Tennis, you know, they, they come to be part of the family and the lifestyle. You know, it's not, it's not someone who's gone, right, I'm just going, I'm off the work type of attitude nine till five you know i i do strongly believe you know and, and it's i guess the proofs in the pudding of how the coaches have been over the years they all become very connected to to, to the academy and to the to the core values and beliefs of the academy and, and i think that's that's part of the recruitment process you know i i tend to know who my next coach will be six 12 18 months in advance because we do work so closely together all of my coaches coaches I, I can't speak highly enough of so if, if, they're, if they're listening to this podcast a big a big shout out to, to all of my coaches because they really are they're, they're fantastic and what are your core values as an academy we we start with with honesty you know and that's that's always been something that is is very 
very close to us in in everything that we do. Um, you know, and that's whether that's being honest with the, with the players, you know, with the parents, you know, the expectation, you know, all of all of all of those things. You know, humility. You know, making sure that you know we are we are very humble in in what we're doing. You know, where we understand. We understand the sport is much bigger than us. We understand that we're very, we're very fortunate to to do what we do, and then and then what we then do each year, Fabio is is I want them to be set by by the players, coaches at the academy. So so what we do at the start of each year, we get together into little focus groups, and the players first and foremost they talk about their ambition. You know what is their ambition, and then we come together so we understand what the ambition of the players and the coaches is at the academy. Now in the ten years of, of running that, it's never been less than than trying to get to Division One college level. So so basically, what we're saying is we want the environment to be good enough to allow players to make it to professional level of tennis. So then all the players and all the coaches agree on that. And then I then get back then back into focus groups to then discuss what they believe the values need to be at the at the academy in order for that to happen. And what, what we then do is we bring that together and that actually is it's it's always very similar because obviously we have an impact on that. But the acronym that we've had this year is is growth, you know, which is which is gratitude, which is respect, which is ownership of, of what you're doing. Um it's it's want want and desire. It's then the the T stands for the T stands for the daily bill. So we t- we talk about the daily bill to be successful at anything that you do. There is a bill to pay, you know, and that's sleeping well, eating well, warming up well, doing your gratitude in the morning, you know, cooling down well. You know, if you're not taking care of those things, don't expect success success doesn't come for free so so that's in there and then we have the h which is our kind of core honesty and humility values that are in there as well and you know so that's that's kind of and we'll do that again in september if it does change ever so slightly there's obviously the strong principles in place that we have at the academy from control the controllables pressure as a privilege you know there's these things that really stand up and hold true throughout the academy um but the big one on the values and this has been a journey i've gone on it's it's one thing writing them down but the biggest thing is actually that the players are living them every day and the coaches are so we we get together every friday uh what's all friday circle which stands the circle stands for you know the team that we have the team that we have at the academy the unit and the bond and and players each week will give examples of how they or other players have lived the values throughout that week so we're constantly trying to keep that at the forefront so that we've we've got this almost kind of code code of work that, of, of how we do it because i'm a big believer that in order to have the best culture you almost want it to be self-policed you know and if and if players are calling other players out for not doing it or players are are giving daily examples of where the values have been have been shown then you go quite a long way and you might have actually seen it we had a post from the tournament this weekend you know one of our 12 year old boys was taking our one of our nine-year-olds through a full warm-up before the tournament and that 
he hadn't been told to do that. It was just I walked around the corner and I managed to capture that moment. And that's when I know that the culture is really starting to work when we're kind of self-policing it without the coaches having to dictate that all the time. That sounds like a well put together plan. And I did see that post, uh, by the way, I thought it was great. So yeah, congrats on, you know, being able to put that together and talk about it so cleanly like it all makes a lot of sense and obviously as you say the challenge is getting people to believe in it to act on it every day but it sounds like I know one of your players well Pete Botwell who spent a lot of time with you there and he definitely has a lot of those qualities so I, I can see your work going going through him. My final question Dan on this tennis player life at Soda Tennis Academy is cost. What is an estimate cost in euros for a player to live there all year yeah so our i guess it it, we're transparent in terms of the different options that people have and then you've got the pro you've got the pro team which how i do it with the pro team is we we set that up in a bespoke manner because i i believe in value and different ways of giving value so so i won't talk about the pro team because that's that's separate but we we have the players that are coming into for tennis, you know, for tennis, a tennis program, 52 weeks a year of management, it's 16,500 euros, which falls quite a long way short of, of the majority of, of tennis yeah. academies out there. Where the costs start to get up a little bit is if they're coming in and they're doing full-time boarding and full-time schooling because those are costs that I can't control. So then you're looking at it being, if, if someone was to come in and do the full-time schooling at the international school with the full-time boarding at the international school and the tennis, then we're starting to look at €40,000 per year. If players are coming in and there, which a lot of them are, and they're living with parents, or they're coming in and they're living in in the boarding house there of the age to to be self sufficient. Then it's a much cheaper it's a much cheaper way of doing it. And then the, then the final bit then on the education is we do have some players that are coming in and they're doing on their online learning, whether that's whether that's through a, an official, they're very sophisticated, these online learning um, schools now, or whether we've certainly had, we've had Irish players who have taken taken that year out that you have in Ireland, you know, and they've come in and maybe they've, they've gone, they want to use that year to train at a tennis academy. And then maybe we set up that they're doing a couple of hours Spanish a week or a one hour Spanish a, a day. So this still kind of fulfilling some form of education whilst they're here or maybe they take a certain course when they're here in terms of the costings it, it, it all depends on what bits everyone's picking you know in terms of are we doing the high, highest level school with the highest level boarding or are we doing this this way or that way um, but the way that I've always structured the pricing and, and it's the same I've always waged my coaches is I'm a big believer in it the job is the job so it's so right we're working with a player and it's when you start doing pain play and you start bringing together okay you're paying for that lesson then that squad then that fitness then this it starts to one get more pricey but two you're not really working all inclusively with that player you know and and the the big part for me is how the program's managed you know going to tournaments you know spending time talking on the phone spending time texting them you know doing all of the extra bits you know on a Sunday afternoon going and watch them, watching them in that final 45 minutes away and staying and having food with them afterwards and getting to know the family really well you know so it's really kind of an all inclusive 
exclusive way that we work with our full-time players. In terms of access players coming in, it's outside of July and August. I believe it's about €450 a week for the tennis and physical program, which is all-inclusive for the week. And then July and August, it's about €500. So again, we've we've done a lot of research into tennis academy pricing and we wanted to set ourselves lower than some of the some of the big names out there. Um, but at the same time, we also have to value the, the excellent service and make sure that the business is running so that we can continue to bring in these great coaches and, and the great offering that we currently have. Your prices sound pretty reasonable. Uh, I think from our research on the Academy's list, prices roughly range from thirty-five to 50000 would be the average. I've seen some a lot more now as well. But the European ones seem to be a bit cheaper than the ones in the States. And I do know there has to be a certain low, like you can't go too low because you have good coaches to pay and their time is respected and you're running the business there. You have your bills. So, you know, if, if it's too cheap, there's something up. But I think your price is very reasonable. I th- thank you very much for that info, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. And finally, where can people find out more about Soto and more about your podcast and the courses? Yeah, no, just thanks for asking that, Fabio. It's very kind. Um, I mean, so in terms of in terms of our website, which which everything's linked through, it's our website's pretty simple, but it's just Soto S O T O Tennis so www. We're very active on on social media, um, particularly Instagram and and Facebook. Um, so come and kind of give us a follow on those. We we try we try and give insights into what's happening on a daily basis at the academy through through our our social media. And you know we seem to have quite a loyal following who like to get that insight and find out more. We're also you can find us on YouTube. Which on, on YouTube is a great. We've we've got hundreds of videos, which again give a real insight into how the academy how the academy works. Um, and then from there, you know, you'll be able to get all of the links into Soto Tennis Online Academy and also Soto Tennis, I guess, Academy in in its physical sense. And lastly, anyone anywhere wants to reach out to me, I'm always very happy to talk and discuss anything. And you can get a hold of me through those ways or. Or very simply just down at sototennis.com um, I'm, I'm more than happy and, and love to talk tennis as you probably noticed in this, in this podcast yeah no it was great chatting Dan appreciate it and yeah thanks for all the information on the academy and also from the mental health side and the other bits really great thank you very much I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dan it was great to talk to him and get an in-depth look into life at the academy as well as his tennis career next week We'll be back with Dan telling us how he used the COVID pandemic as an opportunity to grow the academy worldwide. And we touch deeply on mental health issues in tennis. Goodbye.